Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, this is a very interesting point in the retreat. It is for me when I'm sitting, even now being in a teaching position. Nearing the end, it's in sight. You're not here forever. Either fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon what your day has been like. You're aware that it's going to be soon over, but it's not quite over yet. When I'm in this... Uh, in this part of the retreat, sitting, it kind of feels like I'm on a conveyor belt. You know, the motion is is there, and the end is there, and there's nothing I can do to either stop it or make it go faster. But whoosh, kind of being sucked up right towards the end. Especially if you've been here for both retreats, that end seems that much uh, narrower in the context of how long you've been sitting. And you might know or might not, uh, but I'll start planting a seed right now, that tomorrow afternoon, silence is going to be broken. And so, you don't even have one full day left. Just wear that for a moment. And so, what I wanted to talk about was this period of transition and just looking at the whole issue of transition, a change from one major mode of operation to another, both in practice and in life. As most of us know, in both practice and life, when there are major changes, it can be stressful you know, it's right high up on the stress charts, things like getting married, changing jobs, changing your living situation. It's jarring to the system. We kind of get used to the status quo, to the routines, even if they've been boring or uh, whatever, not particularly exciting, they've been kind of familiar and comfortable. And when there's that major change, there's a whole new field of energy and needing to deal with with new things that can be jolting. You probably see this, you probably have seen this a number of times in practice. As the changes in the practice occur, change, say, from concentration to then lack of concentration to then more concentration to then lack of concentration and sleepiness and restlessness and all those things. It's, it's not easy to get into that, that rhythm of the practice. Just any general changes in practice after you've been going for a little while, a certain way. And there are cycles in our energy system. 
cycles where we're sometimes more present, more have higher energy, more mindfulness and concentration. And then there are cycles, seeing how everything is changing, where it goes away. Somehow we kind of get used to things when they're going well and we forget about impermanence at that time. We kind of adapt to the happiness quickly. This is how it's supposed to be. And there's disappointment and confusion when it's gone. Somehow, in my mind, it's kind of like raising the middle of the middle path. You know, right there in balance, highs and lows, whatever. And then as the highs come, oh, well, now I found my new middle path. You know, this is it. The upper middle path. Yes. That's the California uh, teachings. And when we, we take the present moment to be real and kind of freezing it in time, thinking that we've fallen into some right groove, it's so obvious to just think about it. But that's what we do. So obvious that it's going to be causing suffering. I had one retreat. I was talking to someone today and mentioning on one retreat when I started to get concentrated. Each time I started getting concentrated, there was a, a real nervous quality about it. And I found myself for some strange reason running to the teacher saying, I think I'm going to need an interview soon because I'm really starting to get concentrated. I don't know what's going on. And I did this a number of times over the course of uh, a couple of weeks. And the concentration was really getting quite, quite strong. But what was happening and why I was needing an interview was as it would get strong, then I'd think that I'd finally gotten the practice to work and then as a sitting or two later the concentration started to to change there'd be that efforting to get it back and then there'd be a, a feeling of of loss when it wasn't there and then grief and then confusion until finally I just would give up in despair and say oh, forget it I lost it and then phew, there it would come again. Because yeah. as soon as I let go of trying to make it happen, the momentum of the practice was still there and there was concentration factor that was developed. But I was going up and down like a yo-yo for, for weeks like that until I finally saw that's why I would get so nervous when there'd be concentration. Not realizing that that subtle place in me that was already anticipating the loss and the confusion. The highs are just one part of the process and when we can be aware of that, we tune into it as a fluid process rather than fixing it, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. It happens even in our idea of balance in practice, equilibrium. Sometimes I've seen in myself the the tendency to, to think that when I'm balanced, I've arrived at some kind of midpoint you know, where there aren't highs and there aren't lows. Oh, I got balance now. And that's not what balance is because we're 
a dynamic system that's constantly changing. And balance is kind of like the average of the highs and the lows. And it may, may be a midpoint that the scales pass periodically, but you don't stay right in the middle. As the balance develops, the swings aren't quite so, so extreme. But still, there's adjustments in energy, in, uh, in the different factors that are, that are there. And there's a balance with the highs and the lows, not avoiding experiencing them. On one retreat, it might have been the same retreat I just mentioned, it got, it got so clear that there was no way I was controlling experience or could make it stay somewhere. I finally put a little note to remind myself up by my, my bed that said, if the thought, it's happening, comes, watch out. And then right underneath it, I wrote, if the thought, nothing's happening, comes, watch out. It was a very useful note, you know, because each time I'd find myself saying, what's going on? Oh, you don't know what's going on. And you don't know what's right around the corner either. So really, one of the qualities, an art of practice that seems to come over time is being able to make smooth transitions with the changing experience. It's kind of like riding the roller coaster. And it gets developed in a number of different ways on the cushion or here in the retreat situation. A few transitions that we encounter thousands of times during the, the retreat. One is the transition of seeing that you've been thinking and returning the mind from the thought back to the breath. How is that transition made in your practice? Is it a jerking back? Oh, gee, I blew it again. Or is it, oh, thinking, thinking. Okay, come on back over here. All right, let's get started again. No judging. I won't judge, but all right, let's let's get down to it. Or is it thinking, thinking, okay, returning, breathing in, out. And one of the qualities that seems to really facilitate a deepening of practice is just that ability to dance with the objects, come from one back to the other, especially in that moment when you've seen you've been wandering, where there's so much room for judgment and, and confusion, agitation. Another part or encounter with transition, as you're going through the retreat after working with the breath for a little while. And then the instructions start to open up to include sensations and, and other things as they present themselves. That's an interesting transition, especially if you're working with the breath primarily and in a very focused kind of awareness. Because when you get very focused on the breath, for a while the hindrances just don't come up because there's no room for them to. The continuity is, is that strong. And then as you open up the field, 
there's the place where all sorts of things that have been there start to start to present themselves more dramatically can be jarring. One, one retreat I had mentioned maybe to the whole group or one of the groups, I had worked with the breath for about five weeks actually, just staying on it. Not, not excluding things, but just kind of gravitating back each time and it got, got pretty focused. And then after that time, I said, okay, time to open up the field. And the first few days were like just a cyclone. You know, just everything, hindrances coming up, multiple hindrances attacking you know, all over the place. And I had the thoughts, oh, gee, I really blew it. I really wasted my time. You know, I, I should have been doing this weeks ago. Now I'm just kind of spaced out. But what actually happened was after a few days of transition period, the concentration that was there could be applied in a much more powerful way to the changing nature of experience. But it was that rocky period, that unsettling period, making that transition of opening things up uh, that was a real challenge. I didn't realize that was happening until afterwards, looking back, oh, that was what was going on. Another place of transition that's been talked a lot about during the course of the retreat is the in-between times from sitting to walking or from walking to eating or getting up to coming over to the hall after getting dressed and taking a shower, whatever. Those periods of transition are really easy to space out on when you think that the practice is about just sitting and walking. And when we can focus carefully on those in-between times, the practice just deepens tremendously because there's that, that continuity of awareness that builds the momentum for deeper concentration. And it's, it becomes a real joy of practice when brushing your teeth is as significant a meditation object as watching you know, the hair follicles as the, as the breath comes in. And then it's just one dance. Another area of transition in the, in the meditation is watching the different mood swings as just mentioned. And as we need to learn again and again and again and again, that's part of the practice. And so as you learn it for the 200th or 5,000th time, oh, this is just that part of the cycle. Okay, I got it. And each time as you open up and just allow it to be, there's not that feeling of confusion. Really, this art of being with the transition times is just feeling the rhythm of the change and not imposing our own schedule, our own, what we think is our, the idea of the rhythm on top of it, but rather receiving each moment as it's presenting itself and each change. Sometimes when we're practicing, many people have experienced the changes are happening so fast as the awareness gets 
gets stronger and concentration gets stronger, that it seems like there's no place to stand. You know, how can I stay with all these all these changes? And at that time, it's it would be very difficult to find the rhythm in being with each thing and holding on for dear life and, and trying to uh, to label it because the words just can't go that fast. I was talking to uh, to one yogi who's shared a really uh, useful tip when that's happening. He said he recalls the uh, the Buddha in the gesture of touching the earth. There's a, big, there's a nice statue in the meditation center in Barry of the, the Buddha in that, that mudra. Just as his enlightenment is about to happen, when Mara is bombarding him with all sorts of defilements and temptations, just getting grounded, here I am, yes, I have a right to be here, I have a right to be fully awakened, but in that, that space of just touching here, it's like all this other stuff is just buzzing around, fleeting by, and here we are. And it can be useful to do in your own practice when things are going so fast, just to make contact. You can make contact with your butt just on the cushion. When everything else is just cycloning by, there you are, buttocks sitting on the cushion. Or even taking your hand, one yogi said, and she did, just taking your hands and just holding on. All right, that's fine. The show is still going by, but you don't have to be busy trying to catch up with it. Another way that I find real helpful to get some grounding when things are going so fast, whether it's because the rapidly changing objects or the mood swing or the, the confusion is just too much. Just remembering to breathe. Breathe easily. Breathe deeply. And in that breathing, it's an easier object to pay attention to and it also channels the energy of the agitation. And so here I am again. Not in a sense of avoiding what's going on, but just giving enough space so that you can see it clearly. So you're not trying to capture it. Riding the tail of the tiger. As the, the meditation deepens, and many people have experienced, the the solidity of experience starts to dissolve. So those transitions aren't quite so jarring in the sense that the increments of experience one moment after another become more easily perceived. And so the process starts taking on this fluid nature at times Oh, sitting, to standing up, to moving, to reaching, to touching, to pulling. And then even within those actions, each one of those sometimes is seen as broken up into just micro-moments of one way that I have of describing it, kind of non-verbal, is instead of a breath 
becoming just, it's kind of like that. You know? And so each moment there's that transition. One moment to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's not that major change. Oh, how did I get from here to there? And when that happens, there's just that natural settling into the dance and just seeing how one unfolds into the next. And it's a kind of settling back that occurs because there's no way that you can hold on to each of those moments. And just seeing that the present moment is the only place to be and getting that kind of more spacious awareness within that context of refined perception. The idea sometimes happens of, well, what, hap- what if I just let go of, of noticing what's going on? You know, I might just fall into the big abyss and just, uh, just be lost. And sometimes people hold on to the breath or hold on to the object just for a sense of, of being present and being grounded because the confusion might follow. I, I think it was Sharon has this this image, it's a really nice image of walking a tightrope and there you are kind of afraid of falling off, falling off the object. And what happens is that when you fall off, where do you land? Just on another tightrope. Because here you are. It's in the present moment, wherever you happen to be. And so as you see, you know, that falling off and that fear about what's going to happen next is just a creation of mind that where you're landing is always in the present moment, there's a kind of relaxation that's possible with that. The practice lets us see our relationship to change because it's happening all the time and here we are looking at it and seeing how we're dealing with it. One level of it it, that's fairly obvious is that we see when things are unpleasant, we want them to change. Or when things are pleasant, we don't want them to change. Another way that the practice shows us our relationship to change, we see sometimes the tendency to want to stay with the familiar. Some, some people have that tendency as part of their, their personality. You know? They don't want to change the schedule or to... Uh, to change the the lunch shifts, especially if they've been eating on the first lunch shift. <laughs> or they don't want to change you know, their, their rhythm of practice. You know, I've been going to bed each time, this time, and it's worked for me. Let me just play it safe and, and stay with it that way. Other people have a different style of personality, that likes to have change and gets bored if things don't. You know, come on, let's let's get a little bit of creativity in this in this retreat. You know? <laughs> how about doing a group walk, or how about you know doing some yoga stretching as as practice, and let's do something interesting. And so you can see that tendency of mind, whether you like the familiar or like the, or get bored with the familiar. 
And the practice is is kind of a learning to just take refuge in what is happening. Because as we've seen again and again and again, we don't have much control over it. And so, hopefully there's developed a sense over the days that you've been here of just taking refuge in the present moment. Because that's all there is. And when we can do that, it keeps us grounded. It keeps us grounded, not reaching out for the, the future, not pulling back and holding on to the past. But rather, it's a, it's a kind of listening to what's happening and settling into it. Often, transition brings about a real feeling of loss in practice and in life. Right now, during this transition period in the retreat, there might be a sense of the ending process as being a kind of sad space. Unless you're in a very difficult place today or your bones are aching or you're looking forward to of course there's looking forward to things at home and stuff like that but somehow there's a kind of comfort in the silence and in the sangha there's a real feeling of family that's here and a real feeling of protection in the dharma in the dharma circle and of course we can't hold on to it if we try it gets very difficult I was talking with, with one of the staff today who had to leave. And she, was, she was leaving early. And she was going through a real sense of you know, <clears throat> sorrow, getting in touch with that. <clears throat> and we were saying how it's interesting that we've kind of created almost a tangible entity here called Yucca Valley 1985 just by our various comings and goings from, from different places. And it seems like a real live entity until the final gong rings and you start going on your way and it starts to dissolve and disperse. Where is it? Where was it? And then you see that the solidity of that, that feeling that we, that we have such a strong contact with it's a feeling about something that's just been created for a little while and then dissolves and as that illusion of solidity becomes apparent then there's the letdown and the despair until the next thing comes and you're on your bus or calling your your partner or whatever and then swept up into the into the next chapter. It's just like practice. Where does one event begin and another one end? Or one event end and the next one begin? The boundaries are kind of artificial. Actually, I think that the retreat starts, for me, the retreat starts when I'm sitting, when I send in my deposit. You, know, you probably had that experience too. 
or it, if you can go back further and further, it starts when the your last retreat you say, well, gee, I got to go do that one again, or you know, see what more I can learn. And then somewhere along the the blip comes through the mind, hmm, I'm going to have some some time in April or June or whatever, and then a little gestation period, and then okay, one time I just found myself filling out the, depo- the, the check in my bank for a deposit to send into a three-month retreat. I had been debating for weeks whether or not I should do it. You know. And there I was one day just you know, filling out this deposit to send into Barry. Oh, I guess I'm going. <laughs> and then the retreat got more real, and, and then I finally got there, and that was a whole other part of it. But those fine lines are, there's no real fine line. It's just this process of coming into being and then dissolving. And as it dissolves, there's naturally going to be a feeling of loss. It's a kind of death that, that we need to encounter. It's loss of the familiar into the unknown. And in a way, it's like a dying process that one encounters in, in life you know, as the body dies. You might be familiar with the stages of, of dying that Kubler-Ross talks about. First, a kind of denial. No, no, really. It can't be ending so soon. And then a kind of frustration or anger, irritation, rage. And then a kind of bargaining with it. Gee, you know, maybe I can keep it here for a little longer. Or if it's the body, maybe if I do this and this and this, I can get it to to obey me. Maybe I can savor the sweet moment of the retreat just, just a little bit more and capture it and keep it here. And then there's the period of of grief when there's the understanding that you can't. And that grieving process is is one that needs to be honored and takes time. Especially when we lose someone or or something that's that's been very dear to us. And then finally, with some awareness, there's a kind of acceptance. Oh, this is the way things are. And how can I deal with it skillfully? And so, in addition to honoring that, that grieving process and seeing that it's natural to feel a sense of loss, we can also use the awareness that we get from our practice here to just explore the ways that we do hold on to the past and the ways that that in itself is the creation of suffering. And as we can see that more clearly, getting a sense of our relationship to change, that we have some kind of ability to cultivate more openness with, rather than fear, a certain kind of settling into trust in the process. And during that, that ending, that transition, it's very useful to have the attitude of softness, of gentleness, a kind of nurturing, because the system is going through a jarring shift. 
थे In the world, when we go back to our lives and have to deal with these major transitions, some of the things that we've gotten in touch with here can be tremendous uh, aids for dealing with them. As I said, refuge in the present moment, refuge in the Dharma, a kind of trust in the lesson that's, that's here right now. Not so much trusting in ourselves that I'll be able to know the right thing to do or that I won't blow it, but more trusting in the awareness of the moment. If we just rest in the moment, we see the fear is a creation about the next moment. And that's something extra. So taking refuge in the moment, in the Dharma. Another kind of Protection. The word protection came up in a question last night, and that was mentioned by Jack. Is taking refuge in loving kindness, a kind of protection in keeping the heart open and soft, as an antidote to that contraction and fear. A third kind of protection wasn't mentioned last night, but it's been mentioned uh, earlier in the retreat. Through our transitions is a kind of is taking a refuge in the precepts, just as a kind of protection that we're living in harmony with our lives, and so we're not creating more suffering through our actions. And there's a kind of um, confidence that comes from that, a kind of safety in the refuges that can keep us on track through those periods of transition where it's so easy to get lost in uh, because of grasping, lost in in attachment or lost in, in aversion. And another thing that we see here when we when we look at transition, when we see it in our practice is that we're always in transition. When aren't we in transition? When you see one moment after another constantly changing. That there's no way that you can stop the show. And so instead of trying to stop it, maybe a kind of sense of enjoying the ride. Just seeing what's here. Maybe with a spirit of adventure. While also honoring that effect of the jarring change to to our bodies and minds. So what I would suggest for this last period of the retreat, this last day, last day and a half, last day of intensive practice and then opening to uh, to the speaking, and then working a little bit more with silence, and then uh, the goodbyes, is to really focus on the softness and the gentleness in the practice. A gentleness with the moment, a gentleness with trying to make anything happen in your, your meditation. Perhaps if you've been doing a lot of pinpoint concentration, 
just kind of softening a bit, opening it up to a more panoramic awareness. Unless it's just happening by itself, it's not that you need to pull yourself away, but rather than striving to make the concentration concentration strong, just an ease with the practice. And as you get that sense of spaciousness of the practice in a larger context, then the return and the onslaught is not quite so intrusive. And you've acclimated yourself to the new amount of energy that's going to be coming in. So again, with a kind of open awareness that just lets the process take care of itself and just unfolding naturally. So we have some time for perhaps questions or discussion. Well, I, I wouldn't speak for the Bidiwala, uh, but I can say that according to the progression of meditation practice to the scriptures, there are certain points that there are the uprooting of negative tendencies in the mind. And those are the, that's one way that defines the, the different stages of enlightenment. One's first stage, there's no more doubt, no more belief in the concept of self, no more belief in rites and rituals. Second stage, third stage, third stage, letting go of attachment and aversion, no more, no more fear in that way. Well, there's a difference between really realizing it 
and having that that understanding it seems and having an enlightenment experience which in which there's cessation of body mind objects and a permanent uprooting although when you see for yourself in the meditation practice other than that experience there can be a real powerful transformation that that is with you it doesn't mean that you won't ever fall back into delusion or things like that but there's a kind of shift in perspective Yeah, keep on practicing until you get enlightened. Keep on practicing until I know in my own practice there have been there have been perceptions that have changed my relationship to uh to to the different things that come and go. I still get caught and it's just a matter of reminding myself, remembering the truths that I know are in there but just have um get clouded over by certain tendencies of mind. And so rather than wondering, you know, how to fix the experience, it's just a matter of keeping on reminding myself of what I already know and keeping on further practice until they're permanently uprooted. Rather than asking why, uh what makes it happen is just continuing to be mindful and continuing to practice. And so it's just, you know, only go straight as sansanim says just there it is in front of you would you, would you speak on on intending and bodily tension relations between those two um, intending in the short term and intending in the long term Seem to have a different connection with that. Uh, I'm not. Okay, keep on elaborating. Uh, I, I, I'm just exploring this, and I discovered I have a I have a writer's cramp, and if my intention is to write a message, mm-hmm. a long-term intention, then uh, then my fingers cramp up and there's pain and distorted. Mm-hmm. But if the intention is just to form one letter in the M, then it's easy as pie. And can you so do that? There's, there's some different degree of, of physical mm-hmm. bodily tension, mm-hmm. depending on whether it's it's a, a long-term intention and a short-term intention. Well, there's also the body obeying certain physical laws that after a while there'll be buildup of. lactic acid or whatever it is that starts to create soreness in the muscles that uh that has something else than than the mind's intention um so i don't try let me come again 
in the in the transition from desire mm -hmm. to intention to action, mm -hmm. at at some point, bodily intention comes into the picture, and it's it's starting to look to me like maybe it's it's in there at the at the moment of intention instead of at the beginning of action. It's, it's all fuzzy, the boundaries between these. So my question is, talk about tension, bodily tension, and intention. I feel like I'm on the $64,000 question. <laughs> 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 Just keep on looking for yourself. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let that one pass. <laughs> That comes back to the question a few nights ago about giving more than than you can give when it feels right to give and feeling guilty if you don't. It seems that it's useful to just follow your heart and do what what your Dharma is telling you to do or is the message that feels right with as little ill will as possible. But there's no way that you're going to be able to please everybody. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean that as you do that, you can't feel compassion and, and care for them. Uh, it seems useful if they're wondering if you're doing it to hurt them or if there's that kind of thought to just somehow be able to communicate what the intention is behind your action. That doesn't have to do with hurting them, but it's, uh, it's just doing what, what you need to do and hoping you can get their, their blessing as well. And if, lesson is there to be learned by staying or if you're just uh, if it needs if you need to to move on is that, is that the question in reference to in reference to, to transitions yeah right right well 
sometimes the lesson is to need to move on. Just as well as it could be, you know, oh, stay here and work things out. Listening to to your unfolding, and that's what's needed to take a, a stand, make a decision, and and follow through on it. And that's the perfect, you know, that's that's another fine way to learn by being able to listen inside. I find I've played around with I've played around with this listening to the messages. I don't know if I mentioned it on this retreat, but something that I've found really helpful is listening to the tone of the messages that come through. And if there's a kind of judgmental or fearful or kind of tension-ridden tone, that's probably a message just coming from either tapes or fear or attachment or whatever. And if it's coming from a deeper place that's supportive, compassionate, not necessarily wimpy, but a, a, a message with integrity you know, that just feels right, that's probably you know, a, from a, a deeper place in my heart. And it's helpful when I can just take the time to distinguish the tone of the different messages. what you did. About making decisions, or well, first of all, it's giving yourself space to make mistakes, and not feeling that you've got to get it perfect all the time. Rather, seeing from the mistakes you make and all you can go by is what your heart says. Or, that's not all you can go by, but it seems to be useful to to go by that. Just share something that, uh, a story that uh, I sometimes talk about when it comes to making decisions. About a number of years ago when I was at a crossroads in my life and I didn't know quite what to do, go to Asia or sit and work at the center in Massachusetts or 
continue teaching school or uh, in New York or move out to California. And I went to this psychic uh, in, in Denver who was a very wise man. I saw him a couple of times. Charged $5 for a reading. And, uh, uh, and he had a big congregation and taught people how to be uh, sensitives. And uh, I asked him, you know, well, what should I do? I've got all these decisions, you know. And he said, well, I won't tell you what to do, but I will tell you one thing. I said, what's that? He said, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? That's my life you're talking about. It doesn't matter. And he said, well... If you're frozen in indecision, the forces that be, the energy that there is, can't guide you or work with you. That was his metaphor for the process. And you can be paralyzed for a long time like that. But if you just take the first step, then the, you can maneuver through situations and see, no, okay, this one doesn't feel right time to try the other. And so rather than second-guess yourself and thinking, oh, I blew it, rather to de- than just adjust and see what's, what's the next step to, to take. So that, that way there's no right or wrong, there's just listening to the moment. And the moments are changing. But keeping on tuning in in a more, a more sensitive way. That's real good. Everybody hear, hear that? Thank you. Retreats are, are not very good places to make major life decisions. <laughs> partly because they're made in your imagination. You think about a place or work or a person um, and all you have is your memory. And as you know, very strong feelings come up. And so it's often quite useful to go back and let yourself get settled again and with the freshness of your vision from having sat take another look and really mm-hmm. see what's there as it presents itself rather than your imagination and out in that direct relationship to then consider what's appropriate okay well it's just about eight o'clock so um Enjoy this last day. As, as I said, be soft and open with your practice. No need to strive to make anything happen. You know, it's probably happened by now or whatever has happened has happened. Now just to soften up <laughs> and get into the moment, just receiving it, not controlling it and be a bit more spacious with the practice. Okay, thank you. Ten day people who've done five or more retreats or so. Please stay.
What seems important for you as a group in keeping people after the talk the last few times? And actually, kind of sorry we didn't start it earlier in the retreat as we did the first 10-day course. Um, It's just that people who have practiced for as many retreats as some of you have are in a different phase in practice and have different questions or different kinds of understandings. It seems important to make a space to address those and... Uh, to bring some special attention or energy to practice over the long term. Um, So for tonight, there are two things. One is if there are particular issues or concerns that anyone would like to bring up, we could discuss. The other that came to my own mind was to do something of the opposite of two nights ago rather than to listen to what were the difficulties and the things that were the hardest place to pay attention, to hear from people who would choose to um, what has been really good for them or what they've discovered or what's been uh, helpful or beneficial in this retreat or recently in their practice. But before that, is there any other topics or concerns anyone would like to raise? So if you could sit at home three hours a day. (laughs) Some of these people are having trouble getting three minutes, I can tell. So it's very sweet. And and fortunate to have that much time. Although from some perspective, it's not so much. It's true. Um, Walking at home, I find uh, to be useful in two ways. One is, and this is for people with a shorter amount of time than that, if you find yourself to be agitated and restless, to do some walking before you sit, even if it's just five or ten minutes, can often kind of center you and settle you so when you sit, the sitting will be more present and brings a kind of uh, collectedness to the body and mind. Um, For longer periods of time, Walking is, one of its main functions is to raise energy or keep energy in balance with the settledness, the calm, and the concentration of sitting. I don't know how long you can sit comfortably, but especially in daily life, it tends to be shorter than during a retreat time when you're more in the rhythm of practice and more collected. And so if you have three hours, a, a good example might be to sit for an hour and then walk for 45 minutes or so and then sit for another hour and maybe end again with a little bit of walking, something like that. Jack, assume the, uh, the uh, format was there was an hour available in the morning and perhaps in, in, in the midday and in the evening. Then I'd take a measure of your energy. 
and see if the afternoon time you tended to be sleepy. I do half an hour walking and then sit, or three quarters of an hour walking and then a short sitting. Similarly in the evening, um, if your energy is quite alert, you might do mostly sitting with a little walking before. I, with three hours of practice, it would be worth experimenting doing some period of walking. Um, see where it seems most useful to bring your energy up. Right. I find that I walk in the morning as soon as I get up and and then meditate. And I also meditate after my swim in the morning and my swim in the afternoon. Forget about the evening. I think that I, I, I'm beginning to think that I'm, all I do is creating a lot of frustration and anger. By trying to meditate, sit in the evening. Sit at night, uh-huh. uh, I, uh, it's not that I always want a good, a good sitting, but... Uh, it just, I just get so agitated. But you don't always want a bad sitting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, in the evenings, if it's repeatedly difficult, it may be true. It may be appropriate for you to focus most of your practice. Um, and the, especially if you have a certain amount of time, it's nice to put a good measure of it in the, the time when you're able to feel collected. Um, there's nothing at all wrong with that which sort of nourishes or supports that growth in yourself. And the Buddha uh, used an image one time, partly in relation to who he taught, but also how one did practice. He said, if a farmer has three different fields, and one is very fertile, and one is medium, and one is rocky and difficult to plow and uh, unfertile, he'll plow and sow the fertile field first. And so it's most useful to put your energy and support into those things which really nourish you. You'll have plenty of suffering to meditate on anyway in your life. Exactly. Eric, what were you going to say? Um, Perhaps we could talk a little bit about um, what has become, I think, the central question for me and for many of my friends. Um, um, I'm not sure quite how to describe it, but it's it's, um, sitting in service. Sitting in service. Um, We come to these retreats and and learn valuable things, and yet we find a world which has urgent needs. I find value in both. Right. But it's sometimes very hard to keep the equation. I'm going to put it off a little bit because part of it's the topic of the talk for tomorrow night. And then you may want to raise your hand and kind of ask some supplementary question to it because it is a really important issue of how both to uh, take time and honor one's interior work and at the same time seeing the rather urgent needs of a crazed planet of human beings, how to respond in a compassionate and appropriate way. So let me put it off till tomorrow. It's a good one. Please. It's kind of funny the way that you brought this up about asking, and that you're going to ask about that good, good stuff also. Uh-huh. Because my question is kind of related to that. Sumeda asked the other night about um, the fact, mental factor of rapture. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of interested in the relationship between that and the first noble truth, because um, it seems like sometimes we have an idea that we're supposed to be suffering, and that colors our experience in practice thereafter uh-huh. unnecessarily. Um, and it may even be a very subtle 
kind of idea that, that hangs around. And I'm wondering... Okay, let me see if I can answer that a little and then maybe we'll go on to that other. The traditional teachings say that, <clears throat> the Buddha said, that there are four ways in which practice develops. Some of you have heard this already. <clears throat> One way is rapidly and with pleasure and delight. A second way is quickly with suffering and pain. A third way is slowly with pleasure and delight. And the fourth and unfortunately what seems to be the most common way is slowly and with suffering and pain. Um, As with people's body rhythms, as Evelyn spoke about, day people, night people, there will be tremendous variation in the way that practice unfolds. And some people sit with fire and pain and physical suffering. Others sit very comfortably physically but have grief or sorrow. Others sit and concentrate more easily and there comes rapture and bliss. So that's speaking of the way practice itself can develop. And of course, it's not very useful to have a set that it's going to be suffering or bliss, either one, because it changes all the time. In relation to the Four Noble Truths, which is really a deep question, even if the practice develops with delight and rapture and joy and ease, still there must come for liberation to take place a realization that the grasping or holding or identification with any part of this changing process is itself burning, is painful, is suffering. So that if you take the body or the feelings or the perceptions and memories or the volitions and actions or the knowing itself to be I and hold it, It will burn, it will hurt. And you see that, and that is what part of what leads to the disentanglement of the heart and the mind to freedom. And that's a different question than whether there's rapture, because you can be in the midst of rapture and bliss and in deep levels of practice for everyone, even those who go the path of suffering. There will be periods of light, of rapture, of uh, inner white light or colored light, of bodily ease. Um, And even in the midst of that, there can be a sense of the pain of the subtleties of grasping or identification or attachment. And so for freedom to come has to be a complete disentangling from all of the five aggregates. There are three or four kinds. There's the pain of pain. There's the there's the dukkha of pain. There's the dukkha of impermanence. That what's pleasant doesn't stay, and what's unpleasant stays too long. Um, there's the dukkha of um, identification with the five aggregates, and there's the dukkha of uh, sense contact itself. And at times when the mind becomes quite silent and very sensitive and open and receptive, you can feel that hearing or seeing, you feel the sound come, it can be the most beautiful sound, and there's a, the contact itself has a kind of burning quality, or sight comes and you feel an impact somehow on the system, and there's a certain pain in it, and then you come to where it just stops, and it's 
utterly delicious. It's like wonderful night's sleep. The senses stop where it all stops. Body and mind just stops. What's the last little bit? Whether there may be a difference in, in Buddhist schools about this, I don't know. Um, whether the teaching is that contact with the senses is inherently unsatisfactory, or whether merely clinging the burden and identification are inherently. Well, if there's no one there to suffer, they won't. So that the Buddha, for example, still saw and heard and ate, or the Bidiwal or someone who expressed the sense of being fully liberated, ate like everybody else and saw and heard and so forth. But there was no longer a sense. He said, this, this has nothing to do with me whatsoever. You know, that or that or that. And therefore, there's pleasure and pain. They kind of take, they do their dance. So it's the shift of, uh, from identification with any part of the process to with the dissolution of that misconception. And as one practices on the levels that we all do, there comes certainly not for many that full realization. I don't know any Westerners of that kind, but, but there comes tastes and uh, not just inklings, but beginnings to experience that. The, that the degree of grasping, the degree of identification, brings that degree of suffering. And it's, as I said one other night, it's like the strong force in the center of the atom. Um, this that takes all of the aggregates to be I and me and mine. And so gradually through deep practice and systematic training over a long time, there comes the loosening and weakening of it. That's already a lot of time. Laurel, please. This question relates to his. It's something I've never quite understood. And it deals with the Theravada and the Mahayana school. And I don't understand. Myself, I can't see the point of all this in becoming enlightened for oneself. The Theravada school. Right. It makes no sense because in doing this, it's like, how could I become enlightened just for myself and leave all the you can't, the, the nice thing is that there's no such thing as what you speak of. No one can be enlightened for themselves. And that's a contradiction in terms. Who knows what they do when they die? I mean, there are Theravada teachings. And the Buddha did that, right? I mean, even in Tibetan teachings, there's the same teaching. What, the Buddha, what happens to the Buddha when he dies? So what happens when, you, when a flame goes out? Where does it go? Um, first of all, nobody that I know has a clue about really what happens. So it's all, it's all very theoretical about what happens to arhats and Buddhas and people when they're fully enlightened, since we don't know anybody like that certainly around here, right? I'm serious. It becomes really a theoretical issue. What is more immediate, and I think why your question is a, is a good one and a compelling one, is this sense of, can I do this practice in a way that leads to more selfishness? Is it just me and mine, my own liberation? My own, my, my own experience with it is that that's actually impossible. Because what one is doing in this practice as you sit here is learning how to untangle or be released from greed, from hatred and from delusion 
from the sense of identification of I, me, and mine, from selfishness. There can't be proper practice, which is selfish Buddhism. It's a contradiction in terms. If you're doing it right, it's the untangling of self. And based on that, then, all that's left is service, compassion, um, manifestation in the world through kindness. It has to be that way. And um, again, I don't speak so theoretically. When I was teaching in about at Naropa Institute in 1975, I just was turning 30 years old. And after part of the summer of teaching, uh, worked very hard, big classes, a lot of lot of energy, and I was tired and kind of full and a little bit burnt out from it. It was really good, so I decided with Joseph and Sharon we went to a house in the mountains to sit and do our own retreat. And I didn't have a long time. I had less than a week. And so with the kind of um, determination that I used a lot, especially in my early days in practice, I said, I'm going to be 30 years old at the end of these five days or so. I'm really going to sit and get very concentrated, even though I have a short period of time. And then I'll take the bodhisattva vows, which in the Mahayana tradition are sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Dharmas are inexhaustible. I vow to master them all, etc., etc. Doesn't when you become enlightened, the sense of self and other beings. Anyway, let me finish the story, please. So, I went to the mountains and um, to, in order to get very concentrated, I kind of put myself in a room and I just sat and walked. And I did real long sittings, three hours, and then I'd get out and I'd walk for a couple of hours and then I'd sit for a few more hours and just not moving, really being still. And gradually over day, over even a few days, got very deeply concentrated. Really first very much one with the breath and then with the pain and stuff that would come from the long sittings. And then that kind of dissolved and broke. And a great sense of equanimity and thought disappearing. Very present. And then it came toward the fourth day of the five and my birthday in time to take the Bodhisattva vows. And I sat down and I read them from this beautiful text and they made no sense. Because in that space where the mind was silent, there was no sense of I, and there was no sense of some other being. It, It just wasn't how one actually perceived it when it empties. And so I rewrote them um, in a way, and I I have it written down somewhere. i see if I can recreate it. Instead of sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all which was a very dualistic way of seeing and dissolves as practice gets deeper. Um, I simply said, I vow to develop boundless compassion, not for me or another being because they weren't there. Uh, Dharmas are inexhaustible. I I vow to master them. Um, I think the quality, I'm trying to remember what the quality I vowed to uh, was... um, something like boundless patience or something which just would take me through every realm of understanding. Um, the, the hindrances and defilements are endless. I vow to overcome them. Isn't that one of the, one of the vows or something like that? And I looked at that and my translation was, I vow to develop a sense of universal humor and, and laughter. Because, again, it, it, it made no sense being dualistic. And so... 
I speak, again, not theoretically, but when the mind becomes silent and when the sense of I and other and grasping dissolves as it does, you yourself may have experienced it at certain times or moments in your sitting, then of itself, because it's our true nature, altruistic motivation, you don't even need to call it altruistic motivation, the genuine sense of connection with all things is there because it is our nature. And as to what happens about enlightened arhats and things like that, we'll leave that to the sages at Nalanda to discuss. I don't know. But in fact, in experience and practice, that's what happens when you work to liberate yourself from selfishness. Um, then it leads, it can't but lead to um, connection with other beings. And so, in fact, um, there are many kinds of discussions and conflicts over the centuries in Buddhist schools of all kinds, um, which are fascinating and reflect different styles of practice and ways of working. Some, like we spoke of a few nights ago, the open artistic poetic way of Ajahn Chah, which again certain schools have, or the very scientific and microscopic and logical way of Upandita. And in the Tibetan schools you find those differences or the sense of solitary practice versus the practice with many people or for many people. Part of those are just styles for individuals. But when it comes to the deepest places in the heart, when it gets silent, the whole sense of self goes away. There's no problem. It can't be. So that's enough, I think, for tonight. We'll have to save everybody's good experiences for some other time. You can keep them to yourselves and savor them like a good dessert. Anyway, the retreat has felt quite special and part of what makes these retreats so special are the group of people who are in some way really committed over a lot of years to practice and to using it in their lives. And So I thank you all very much for sharing this time and space together.